You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. So, welcome to the newest episode of Ask Altucher. I used to do this as like another podcast, and I did it for about a year or so, a couple hundred episodes, did three times a week. and. People would ask me questions or they would email questions or ask me questions on Twitter. And then I would just answer them. So right now people are asking questions on either Twitter or notepad, N-O-T-E-P-D.com. Jay just showed me the spreadsheet of questions. I have not seen them before and I'm going to answer them. The questions could be about anything. Like a lot of times people think, oh, I got to ask about stocks or crypto or writing or podcasting. But I... You know, like anybody else, I have my opinions and you can ask about anything, you know, for better or for worse. I've failed a lot. I've started lots of businesses. I've, this is my third marriage. So you could listen to what I have to say or not about relationships, but people are asking about that. Uh, I have a lot to say about writing and books and interviewing and anything. Chess, I can answer a lot of questions about Jay, my podcast producer. <laughs> Although I don't know everything about Jay. Like, Jay, how's it going with your new girlfriend? Good? Well, yeah, good. She's chilling out here. Just not... Oh, she's there right now? Yeah, yeah. She's just chilling because she's like, I need an accountability partner so she can work. I mean, same with me too. All right. Accountability. That's a good good use case for a relationship. Yes. Robin always comes in here and says, are you playing chess or are you getting ready to do some real work? So here we go. She holds me accountable. You need someone to check in your, on your life once in a while. I yeah, that's very important. It's just like you know, you, you you are who your five closest friends are, right? It's true, and you are who the several trillion bacteria in your body are. Yes, but I have a question for you, James. Uh, huh? I briefly spoke about this before the show. Do you think entrepreneurship or entrepreneur skill is innate, or do you think it's influenced by environment? Well, the reason why I ask this is because, like. I grew up in a family that always believed in working nine to five on a steady job and have saving and that's it. But with the inflation rate going like the way it goes, all your saving is going to be worth 8% less every year, right? It's around 8%, I would say. Well, no, inflation today, the inflation data said 5% and normally inflation is 2%, right. which is what they're aiming for right now. But who knows what it'll be in the future. But regardless of that, let me answer your question. Very good question. 
For one thing, a steady, stable job is no longer steady and stable. Look at how many people, like people think, oh, well, if I'm in tech, it's steady and stable. No, look how many, there's 150,000 layoffs so far in the past few months in the tech industry. So no job is stable. And you're right, you do make a point that often the salary does not go up either as fast as inflation or as fast as you would like it to go up. Maybe you want it to go up faster because you want to buy a house or whatever. The best way to create wealth is to own a large chunk of something and hold on to it for a long time. So that's the opposite of a job and the opposite of day trading, for instance. So for instance, if you're an entrepreneur, you own a big chunk of a business, you hold on to it for a long time, you sell it, and that's how many people have created wealth. Many, many, many people. Or like Warren Buffett, you could own a large chunk of a company and hold it for a long time, which is you know an investing style that, that he's mastered. But to really answer your question about entrepreneurship, I don't think you're born with it, and nor do I think it's related to environment. It's a little bit related to environment. First off, you could be born into what seems like a, an entrepreneurial family. Like, let's say your dad started the biggest car company in the world. Like, your dad was Henry Ford. Well, his children or his grandchildren, they had all the opportunities in the world and they weren't good entrepreneurs. They couldn't even run, some of them couldn't even run the Ford Motor Company. Ford Motor Company's gone bankrupt. So, just because you're born into an entrepreneurial family doesn't mean anything. Now, environment. Yes, if you live, or this used to be the case, if you live in Silicon Valley, everyone around you is an entrepreneur or venture capitalist. So it's probably easier to start a business in Silicon Valley than in Bangladesh. I'm just making that up. I have no idea about the entrepreneurial. I, I don't know what Silicon Bangladesh is like, but the reality is if you're in Silicon Valley, it's easier to start a business. now. But your real question was about entrepreneurial skill. Right. And here is my opinion on that. There's a saying, necessity is the mother of innovation. So when you need money and you don't have a good source of money, like let's say you just got laid off and you need money, or in some ways you need to start a company or, or uh, you have a problem that you need to solve and, you can only, and there's no solution out there, so you start a company to solve this problem, that is what makes an entrepreneur. Desperation, need, curiosity, love. So I'll tell you, like my, first off, my very first company, I always talk about the first company that was successful, but my very first company I started when I was in college, it was called College Card, and we created a debit card for college students. This was before banks were giving debit cards to college kids. This was in 1987. So about a thousand students signed up. Their parents sent us money for some reason. And we, uh, I wrote all the software for, you know, to keep track of the money in the bank, who spent what and which. I convinced every restaurant and movie theater in the town I lived in to accept our college card. And I programmed the point of sales machine so people could go to the local Greek diner and which didn't accept credit cards at all, but they accepted the college card. And and I convinced every restaurant to give a discount, a 20% discount to any student who used a college card. And so I said, you'll be the exclusive Greek diner. You'll be the exclusive movie theater. You'll be the exclusive gym that we use. And that would be free advertising for you because thousands of people will get our college card. So we had about a thousand people and we charged 
their parents $21 a semester to be to have a college card. So we had a fee. And we, but we didn't take any transaction fees. So that was my first business. And it totally failed. It was, you know, a thousand people paying $21. That's 21000 a semester. So about $7,000 a month. Let's say a semester is three months. And then there's a summer where there's nobody. So we, we ran for about two semesters. And I tried to sell, sell the business to the local bank. I was like 19 years old. And they said no. And one company was interested. I called MasterCard and I told them what we were doing. They wanted to visit and check it out. And my business partner said, no, 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 they'll steal the idea. Well, a year later, anyway, they launched debit cards and started issuing them for, to college students. Why do you think the business failed? Well, like I said, it was only making, I had zero money in the bank. Got so it. it was only making you know, $21,000 every three months and no money in the summer. So it was making the equivalent of about $3,500 a month. Well, and I had partners and I had expenses. We, we had expenses. We had to buy all these point of sale machines. We had to, you know, buy the computer that, uh, it was an old fashioned computer. I won't even describe it. We had to buy a com the computer that did everything we paid for marketing. I had an idea where to raise some money, I sold the back of the debit card as advertising space. So the local radio station and the local bank advertised on the back of the college card. That's and I learned a lot about the college card business and about, you know, essentially how to hack like a credit card because, you know, there's all this information on the magnetic stripe. Right. And that's how the point of sale machine would read the magnetic stripe, send the information to our computer through a network that, you know, there was no internet really. I mean, there was an internet, but nobody was using it. So I made my own like networking software. By the way, I had never programmed before in my life. This was my first experience at programming. I switched my major after this to computer science because I loved it. But anyway, it didn't work because we just didn't have enough money to keep it going. And I mean, I was paying myself $100 a month. So oh. that was nothing. I, ha I had to get like a real job. I had no money in college at all. I paid for all my tuition at, from loans and I worked four or five jobs. I took six courses a semester in order to graduate a year early so I wouldn't have to pay for another year. And so I needed to make more than $100 a month. But I didn't think I should have been more entrepreneurial. I should have said, oh, I'm going to start another business and figure out how to make money that way. But I was got a little burnt out on entrepreneurship. Second business I tried to start, it's still a, an ongoing business. There was a free game server called ICC, Internet Chess Club. This was, again, before the web. And it was a way for people to log on to the internet and play chess. And this one guy wrote part of the code. I wrote some of the code. Danny Slater, who was the professor at my school, this is when I was in graduate school, he uh, started the whole thing. And then I suggested to him, let's do it as a business. So we figured, okay, let's do it as business. But I lost interest. And I just, I, I, more, I more enjoyed playing chess on ICC than running it as a business. Do you sell your, do you sell, sell your part though? Or do they not make any money? No, no, I didn't even know what that meant to sell my part. So hmm. I think Danny was a little nervous later. I was going to ask for a piece because it did become a successful business for a while. It still exists, but it's not that successful anymore because chess.com uh, totally became more successful. It's a much better site. But so that was the second one. And by this point, I kind of got a little burnt out on entrepreneurship. I said to myself, never again. I don't even care about money that much. And so just a little brief history then. I got two job offers in New York City. Uh, one 
was JP Morgan and the salary offer was 80,000 a year, which in 1994, this was like a lot of money. This was, I mean, my highest salary before then was like 27,000 a year as a programmer after I left graduate school. So I got a job offer for 80,000 a year from JP Morgan with bonus and that, you know, there would be a bonus to come. And then I got another job offer from HBO for 40,000 a year. And I took the HBO job for half the money. It's not enough money to live in New York city. As you know, oh, I know very well. Yeah. And it wasn't even enough money then. It certainly is not enough money now, but, uh, I took the HBO job because I wanted to stay true to myself. I loved HBO's TV shows. I thought they were the only creative television network at that time. And I was really impressed with them also how often the heads of other media companies started their career at HBO. So they were doing something right. They were like a training ground for CEOs of other media companies. So I knew this would be like a good place for me to go. And also I was really interested in writing. I was writing every single day. So let me ask you one thing, James. Mm -hmm. You didn't take the JP Morgan job, right? So right. What if go we go back time? You took the JP Morgan jobs. Remember, we have a Wall Street Insane series, right? Talk about yeah. fraud and all this stuff. Do you think you would be one of the person that became insider trader? No, no, because it was an IT job. Well, first off, oh. I would never do insider trading. Believe right. me, I have had you know, I ran a hedge fund, so yeah, I have had many opportunities to do insider trading. I never have done anything even remotely illegal. Yeah, well, remember. The episodes with Kelly, Richmond Pope, some they have the accidental perpetrator or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So like, do you think you would fall into that trap at all? No, like, no. You're not, you're not doing anything, but like, would you accidentally? No, no. Because for two reasons. One is, as we described in the Wall Street Insane series, we had so many opportunities to break right. the law and we were the only hedge fund we knew that never broke the law. Like okay. we were, we were too innocent to a fault. Like we couldn't break the law even if we tried. Second, I would have been in the IT department, which is not like where all the insider trading stuff happens. I would be making the trading software maybe or doing some other boring job. I don't I don't even know what I would have been doing there, but it would have been boring. I would have had to wear a suit every day. I would have had to, you know, and I would have done nothing that I enjoyed for years and years just for the money. Have you not watched Mr. Robot? No. <laughs> Okay, never mind then. Then, then the the jokes wouldn't wouldn't land. Yeah, because Mr. Robot, in, uh, what happened is become a hacker from a bank or whatever. I right, I know that much of it. But let me finish the entrepreneurial thing. The you know whether how entrepreneurials are made and not born or not the environment. So I really loved the web at this point, and nobody had a website. I had to convince HBO to buy HBO.com. Somebody else owned it. Guess how much they paid for it in 1995? I would say $3,500? $250,000. Gee, wait, what? Holy yeah. shit. But yeah. was that before the dot-com boom, right? Yeah, it was before. Nobody thought, everybody thought it was going to be a, just a fad. Like nobody really, nobody had a website. And so, so I made HBO's first website. That's a whole other story. I'll talk about it some other time. Then my sister calls me. She tells me my brother-in-law is having troubles with his business. He was like a graphic designer. He made something called CD-ROMs. Can I help him? And so I showed him this brand new thing called the web. He had never heard of it. So he's playing around. He got obsessed with it. He got really good at like designing for the web, but there were no websites. But then American Express wanted to build AmericanExpress.com. So they called, 
their accounting agency, a firm called Arthur Anderson that has since gone out of business. Arthur Anderson didn't know how to make a website. They called like some digital IT firm. They didn't know how to make a website. They called some, you know, new media consultant. He didn't know how to make a website. He called my brother-in-law who knew how to design for a website, but didn't know how to make a website. He called me and suddenly I reluctantly said, okay, I'll do it. You know, it was good. I didn't have a single dollar in the bank. AmericanExpress.com was willing to pay this crazy amount of money. And I did not want to make a website. I did not for someone else. I was very focused on, I wanted to make a TV show for HBO. And I was in the process of making a TV show for HBO, which which they were excited about called 3AM. That's another story. But I helped my brother-in-law. We made some money. I finally had enough money to move into an apartment in New York City. We made another website. We got paid uh, some diamond website on 47th Street. We made that. Then HBO wanted my brother. They didn't know I was involved with them. They wanted my brother-in-law to make the HBO.com. I was in charge of HBO.com. So I essentially hired my brother-in-law and me to make HBO.com. But I still didn't want to leave. So so we were starting to get clients and we were starting to hire employees. We made TimeWarner.com. We made NewLineFilms.com, Miramax.com. We made websites for the Wu-Tang Clan, Loud Records, Bad Boy Records, Death Row Records, Interscope. So all these entertainment companies. We actually spoke to J.P. Morgan about making their website. They wanted us to make their website. But my typical bad habit, which I have to this day, which is I don't return phone calls, I forgot to return their phone calls. And so we lost the J.P. Morgan deal. But it was miserable. I was miserable because I I was too. I didn't want to leave my job. I loved working at HBO and I was pitching this TV show. I wanted to make a TV show. So for 18 months, I stayed at HBO and then all night long, I would work at this business on the side. I was starting. I felt I, I would work there until my brother-in-law had enough employees and wherewithal to run the business on his own. But I turned out to be the main salesperson mm. for... I like, like I would work at HBO, then I would go to the bathroom, dress up in a suit and go across town to, you know, meet with some ad agency about doing websites for all their clients. So I was juggling at the same time, like I was working 20 hours a day, working a full-time job and being an entrepreneur. And then finally I left, we had like 30 employees. I left to go full-time. The company was called Reset and you know, we, we built up, I was getting clients all over the place. We sold uh, a year after I started there full time and it was hard, but that's how I became an entrepreneur. It was basically necessity. Like I was helping. I, I had a combination of, I loved this brand new technology, the World Wide web, triple W dot, whatever. I knew how to make a website. There were five people in New York city who knew how to make a website at that time. I needed to help my brother-in-law because I wanted to be a good family member. And he I should mention, he didn't really speak English, so he really couldn't do sales. So right. he needed me to do the sales. And and also, I was the software guy, so I would do the software. And the, we grew a business. And so finally, it was enough money. I had to go full-time. And that was that. that. That's how I kind of became an entrepreneur. I had a couple of failures and then had that success.
I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Also, like, I felt like, you know, you interview a tons and tons of entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. Most of the entrepreneurs, they have one low point in their life. Like Dan Martell, do you remember his story? So, like, he has yeah. feel so much. He has to, like, steal things. Like, even JT McCormick's, like, his life is not perfect. Like, it's like... Yeah, it's- JT. JT, who, who is the CEO of Scribe Media, his dad was a pimp. And he would yeah. drive around with his dad. When he was, like, five years old, he'd drive around with his dad while his pimp was collecting money from the prostitutes and hitting them and whatever. Even our good friend, uh, Wally Green, you know, he's, yeah. he's he was in a gang and for a long time. And then now he runs, he, he owns Spin, right? He owns Spin New York. Well, he's a partner in it, yeah. Yeah, he partnered with, with Spin. So I felt like I just need to have a low point in my life and then I can be an entrepreneur. Well, I don't think that's necessary. I think a lot of people don't have low points in their lives, but I think you do have to realize that the standard rules don't work. So the standard path that we all grew up with is go to college, maybe go to graduate school, get a job, work hard at your job, get promotions. Maybe once or twice in your career, you switch jobs to get a promotion or or whatever, and then you retire. But A, college is less relevant than ever right now. I'm not going to make the usual argument against college, like do whatever you want, but trust me, it's less relevant than ever while tuitions are higher than ever and jobs are less stable than ever and make less money than ever versus inflation. So being an entrepreneur, it's it's important. It doesn't mean you have to start a thousand person company. It doesn't mean you have to raise a lot of money. Maybe you just start off making, running social media for your friends or doing seller financing and buying real estate with no money down as, as they say in the ads. Like we had that one website with, with, Roy Weaver, where uh, he talked about how he had no money and he started getting into real estate. Our Side Hustle Fridays are all about side hustles that could potentially turn into real businesses. So again, for me, it was 
I'll, I'll tell you this. I've only succeeded at entrepreneurship when I was starting a company that I loved. Like I loved the internet and I loved making websites for entertainment companies. So I loved it. And then I had lots of failures. And the next successful business I started was 10 years later. And it was called Stock Picker, which combined my interest in investing. I loved investing. I was running a hedge fund. Combined my interest in that with website building. Like I knew how to build a website. Note, I said I was running a hedge fund. So that was another business I started, but I hated it. I hated it. And of course, I don't want to say it failed. It did make me money, but I, it didn't, it wasn't like great. It wasn't like some people love running a hedge fund and it becomes great for them. Like we've had Ray Dalio on the podcast or David Rubenstein. These people love, or Steve Schwartzman. These people love the hedge fund business. I did not. And even though I was a great salesperson for websites, for some reason, I was a horrible salesperson when running a hedge fund. And I just could not raise money, even though I had a great track record, everything. Yeah, you and can so, hear all about it in the Wall Street Insane series. Yes, you can hear all about it in Wall Street Insane, our little sub-series. So I would say, for me, an entrepreneur is not born that way because I had no interest in entrepreneurship. I wasn't born that way. It's not the environment. It's a little bit the environment, like New York City and San Francisco are a little bit easier, but that's changing now because of remote work, right. totally changing. It's really necessity. Like other times where I've started businesses, I had no money. Like I went broke after I sold my first business. So I had to start a second business. Necessity is the mother of innovation. Or in this case of Reset, I really wanted to help my brother-in-law and then get back to making my TV show for HBO. Like I had no interest in money at all. I could care less. But then you get a little addicted to it. I made some money. I wanted to make more. I lost all my money. I wanted to make it back. And it becomes like this addictive cycle. And now it's not that I love entrepreneurship and dying to be an entrepreneur. I'd be happy never being an entrepreneur again if I could get away with it. But I do think it is necessary to learn those skills because even if you're an employee inside a company, the way you survive as an employee is by being as entrepreneurial as possible. I describe this in my book, The Rich Employee. Originally, I would say, oh, you can't get rich being an employee. But now I realize you can, but you have to be very entrepreneurial inside a corporation if you're an employee. And so whether you're an employee or an entrepreneur, you still have to be very entrepreneurial and learn those skills, which means coming up with ideas, being very creative, being able to sell those ideas, being able to execute on those ideas, you know, keeping the customer interested. There's a lot of skills for entrepreneurship. That could be another topic some other time, but right. that's my long answer to your question before we even get to the questions on the spreadsheet here. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's well, the, the, the reason why I ask is because like, I feel bad because like my family or my parents, you know, like they have so much saving, they they put us through school and all that stuff, and then all of a sudden they're like, "Oh shit, uh, now we are running out of money. What should we do?" I'm like, uh, "I don't want to be in the situations when I'm like seventy or eighties or fifties. But you know, it happens no matter what. Like, look, yeah, my dad was an entrepreneur, but my mom was the opposite of an entrepreneur. So my mom went to college, went to grad school, one of the first women to go to grad school for computer science. And she became a software programmer for the next, I don't know, 50 years. And, you know, at corporate jobs. And right. my dad was an entrepreneur, was successful for a while. And then he went totally broke and he got really depressed and it was sad and he never worked again. And when he passed away, he was basically broke and my mom was stressed. And my dad was the one who was an entrepreneur. My mom was the one with the 
stable job. So it really just depends. Like my dad had many entrepreneurial skills. He was able to sell very well. He was a very good salesperson, but he didn't really know how to build a bigger business. And gotcha. uh, he went he went completely broke. And my mom's route was safer than his. So it just depends on the family and the person and so on. I feel like it has to be the combination of both. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of a combination of both in that I'm not as optimistic as my dad was. My dad was always like, oh, we're going to get this client and it's going to be the biggest client in the universe. I never heard him say one pessimistic word. He was optimistic to the point of stupidity. And like he taught me chess. And as I was getting, at first he was much better than me because he was a strong player and I was a beginner. But then as I got better, I saw, oh, here's how to beat my dad. He always sacrifices all his pieces because he thinks checkmate is going to happen instantaneously for him. Right. And as long as I just defended against his super optimism, he he never knew when the attack was over and he would lose. So, and both my mom, the exact opposite. She would, like, I remember with my hedge fund one time, we lost a lot of money in one month. And she was like saying to me, just get a regular job already. Just just get a job. You don't have these worries and stresses. Because I was crying on the phone to her. And she's like, oh, I hate to hear you like this. Just get a job. So there's a lot of skills. There's a lot of, there's a little bit of luck involved. And you have to keep trying. And you will succeed as an entrepreneur with persistence. And if you keep, don't assume you know the skills. Don't assume you're a good salesperson. Don't assume you're good at executing or negotiating or marketing or managing people or building your business or selling your business. Don't assume any of these things. Like read books, study other entrepreneurs. A good book about entrepreneurship we had on the podcast, Yuri Levine, the guy who started Waze and sold it for over a billion dollars to Google. I think the name of his book is uh, Love the Problem, Not the Solution. And that's probably the best book on entrepreneurship I've read not an inspiring book. It's very technical. Like this is the skills you need as an entrepreneur. And was it? It's not like reading Richard Branson's memoir, which is a very inspirational kind of book. This was just like hardcore. This is what a term sheet looks like. This is how to do sales. This is what metrics you should use to judge your business. This is how you should hire people. This is how you should raise money. This is how you should sell your business. So read that book. I'm answering another question now. Somebody asked, what are their top three books for entrepreneurs? That's the oh, James AI to ask. Oh, the AI version of me, which we created on Notepad, is asking this. So we fed the AI version of me like a thousand of my blog posts, and now it's a super annoying version of me. <laughs> um, so AI James asked, what are your top three books for entrepreneurs? So Yuri Levine, again, this is not like reading the Harry Potter series. It's not a fun book but it's a good technical book about entrepreneurship. It really tells you everything you need to know. I would say other books that are good for entrepreneurship are not necessarily about entrepreneurship, but books that help you give you a vision of the world. So when I was first starting my first successful business, Reset, it was better for me to read about the internet than to read about entrepreneurship. Now, I did make a fatal flaw when I was running Reset. Again, I'll save that for another time. I didn't understand how businesses are valued, which is more art than science. And so I could have set my business up in such a way that it would have been valued 10 times or even 100 times more than it was eventually valued. So that was a skill I did not have. But in any case, it was very important for me to read and understand and have a vision 
of the world that we were not living in, but about to live in. So I had this strong sense that every company is going to need a website. Zero companies had websites at this point. American Express did not have a website. HBO did not have a website. But by the time I was finished with that business, every company was getting a website. So I predicted correctly and it, and it made me a lot of money. And while it's impossible to predict the future, if you really know a lot about something and you love it enough that you understand the subtleties in it, you'll be able to do some predicting of the, the future. So Yuri Levine's book. And then another book that really inspired me was The Rational Optimist by our good friend and podcast guest many times, Matt Ridley. And it's basically talks about how for the past thousand years or 500 years, every time things look really bad, particularly the past 100 years, every time when things look bad and everyone says, oh no, the dollar is going to zero, capitalism is failing, it's going to be a great depression again. I've heard people say that like every single year. He's a great writer and he gives all of the reasons for optimism during every single period of history. And it really inspires me when I look at the history of events now, even the history of events today, this book was written 10 years ago, but even the history of events today, I think about the rational optimist and what he said there. And look, we've even talked about on the podcast, whether he's still an optimist and he hemmed and hawed a little bit, but he still was an optimist. So that's the second best book uh, for entrepreneurs. And then the third best book, I don't even know. I don't even know. Uh, you know, oh, Jim McKelvey's book, the guy who started Square, he wrote a really good book about the different models for entrepreneurs. And I wrote about his book and kind of summarized it in my book, Skip the Line. So, uh, but I, I think you should read it from the original. Jim McKelvey, founder of Square, wrote a book about, you know, different types of business models. And I thought that was very good. It's called The but Innovation Stack. The Innovation Stack. I'm I'm hesitant though to recommend an entrepreneurship book as a great book about entrepreneurship because I like reading books about things other than entrepreneurship to get inspiration to be an entrepreneur. Right. So I don't know, whatever you love, read books about whatever you love and that will give you inspiration to do what you love. Right. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. I felt like one of the biggest skills that, I mean, we're going to talk more in depth in another episode. I felt like one of the most important skills that entrepreneurs can have is language. 
not English or whatever. It's how you use the words, like persuasions. Actually, Jay, I think you're right. Because look, if you cannot sell, yep. there are many companies with good products that were never able to sell those products and the companies failed. And there yep. are many companies with bad products. Like, okay, uh, this is not a bad product, but I'm going to use an example, which is Apple. So when Apple made the iPod, which was a device to listen to music, it was not original. There were already you know, devices you could put in your pocket that could play millions of songs. There were MP3 players. Now, admittedly, the iPod, and this was sub a subjective thing, it's your opinion or not, the iPod had a nice design, but Steve Jobs was amazing at selling and marketing. Now, selling in terms of using language Okay, that's good if you're selling to other big businesses where you have to individually do it. But he was also really good at marketing and he was really good at negotiating. Um, so he, he, you're right. He was extremely talented with, with his use of language. Now, he had to learn that. He was always a good salesperson, but he was a little, uh, you know, kind of rough around the edges when it came to managing people and managing customers and so on. So that's why they fired him from Apple in the mid-80s. But by the time he came back to Apple, he had matured. He had started Pixar by then. He had started Next Computers by then. So he got he got a little bit more maturity. And uh, and he had a vision of the world, which is that everything you possibly could want to do should fit in your pocket. Like, you know, watching movies, listening to songs, making phone calls, go surfing the web, writing documents. You could all do it for now from, from your phone. I have, don't I have an iPhone? This is an iPhone. Yeah, you have an iPhone, yeah. I am his customer. And look, the iPhone is probably not even the best phone out there for all this. Probably Android is better. I mean, more people around the world use Android than iPhone. I think in the US, iPhone's more popular, but in the world, Android's more popular. Right. So who knows what's better, but he made a huge amount of money doing it. So yeah. I think you're right. I think um, having an ability, that's why I was really glad I spent so many years writing because that gave me... Uh, good use of language for different purposes. And I was always very good at, at selling, except when it came to raising money for a hedge fund. And then I could not sell worth anything. Yeah, because this whole conversation reminds me of Jonah Berger's latest book. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, was it Magic Words? Yeah, Magic Words or whatever, because like he, he, he talked about how just changing like some word with like, rather than can you help me or be a helper, you know, that sort of like convinced the kids be a helper and then they will want to do the chores then the kids you just say like hey just help me do this you know yeah instead instead you say to the kid you're a helper yeah like like it's the difference of saying i'm going to try entrepreneurship versus saying i'm an entrepreneur when you say i'm an entrepreneur you're much more likely to get involved in entrepreneurship yeah i'm a writer is much better to say that than i'm going to try writing a novel this year yeah. like i'm a writer so that's what i do and okay. you, you, you identify with that a little bit more. Right. By the way, a lot of people want to be entrepreneurs. A lot of people want to be writers. A lot of people want to have a TV show. A lot of people want to have a hedge fund. I can tell you, it all sucks. It's all horrible. And I have nightmares about all those things, for instance. Not that they're so bad. Okay, although I just said they, they suck, so they are kind of bad. But it's just anything worth doing is very competitive. So you have to work really hard and you have to face failure all the time. So just as important as what you were saying, Jay, about using language, you have to get really good 
at riding that roller coaster of failure and success. And sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back. All of life has ups and downs. And there are so many times where I'm trying to get good at something, I'm trying to succeed at something, and it's one step forward, two steps back, a half step forward, three steps back, two steps forward, four steps back. And then finally, things happen and it works out. Yeah. Or you quit and try something new. Yeah. And it's hard to know when to quit. Again, that's another topic. Yeah, this is exactly what I'm trying to do right now. I know I was never an entrepreneur, so I tried to do entrepreneur. I, I started to sell shirts on Etsy and I tried to start writing a crossword puzzle book and I'm trying to start a, a show. But uh, none of that has any return yet. But uh, who knows? Yeah, give it. You have to give it. You have to try. Like in my first business, my first success was reset. We didn't know, even though we had made tons of websites by this point, we didn't know if we were going to be successful or not. It's really hard. Again, I was working 20 hours a day. So we experimented. We tried to start a tea company. We made iced tea. We started, we tried to start a, a, a record label. We, we called up rappers and said, hey, can we sign you to our, our record label? We tried making TV shows and pitching them to networks. You know, you just never know. So you have to keep trying things over and over and over again. And that's why I always suggest to people, before you need the idea muscle, the creativity muscle in your brain, exercise it, right? 10 ideas a day. And that's why we built Notepad, which is not a business. Lo and behold, we made a website that's just useful and fun to make. But notepad.com, N-O-T-E-P-D.com, try it out. It Exercise your creativity muscle. Yeah. I feel bad. I sort of hijacked the whole Ask Altature. <laughs> the first episode of I Ask No, no. It's a good... I, uh, look, it's a really important question about entrepreneurship. And a lot of people don't know. There, and there's so much to say about it. Like, I'll leave this question with one thing. Get a customer before you raise money. My first business, we did not raise a dime of money. My most recent business, which is Choose Yourself Media, where I write newsletters, I did not raise a dime of money. Actually, Stockpicker, which I sold to the street.com, I did not raise a dime of money. So get customers no matter what. Even if you think, oh, but I got to write the software product. No, try to do it manually. Like we were talking to Chandler Bolt yesterday who did self, who has selfpublishing.com. He helps people self-publish. It started off with him just coaching people how to self-publish and he would charge for that. Then he would project manage for people. So he would hire the people. Then he hired the people himself to help people self-publish. So you build up, do things as simply and manually as possible and then build what you need to, to run your business as cheaply as possible. Own 100% of your business if you can. Don't give it to the venture capitalists. So that's the last thing I'll say about entrepreneurship today. Although you're right, it does reserve an entire podcast just about the micro skills of entrepreneurship. So much going into it. Like I just started the the thing. I'm like, I thought I could just design a shirt, put it up there, people would buy it. No, no, that's not how it works. So I'm trying. I'm like, look, we made a, I, you know, we, you and I, we made a course on actually self-publishing, writing your first book and self-publishing. But because we have not marketed it, on purpose, we just have not yet tried where we're going to probably start in the next week or so. There's no sales. Sales don't happen automatically. You yeah. Marketing is very important for sales. You cannot sell anything without some marketing. There's very few examples like, oh, well, I know so-and-so, there was word of mouth. That is very rare. You need to do marketing to sell your business. Yeah, I would say like at this time and age, it's very important to be a following 
whether you are famous or whether you're no one, to build a following first, then you know all your all your. I'm not sure because look at Twitter as an example. All right, I have like two hundred thousand followers on Twitter. I've got one point two million followers on LinkedIn. If I make a tweet, only like a half a percent or less of those two hundred thousand followers will see my tweet. So and so that's only like five hundred people. And then of those five hundred people, if I'm tweeting to some product I'm selling maybe only 10 of them will click on a link. So I think having a social media following is people think it's worth more than it is. It's maybe in some cases it's worth a lot. Like I don't know that many TikTok millionaires. They have like 30 million people following them, but they don't make a lot of money, the the TikTokers. It's hard to monetize TikTok. Yeah. YouTube, it's even hard to monetize. You have to do your own deals. Uh, You can't just rely on Google ads. I think Twitch is probably a little easier to monetize if you have a following there. And obviously on Etsy, if you have a following, because that's a, a e-commerce platform. Right. But I don't know. It's it's just it's hard to make a good business. It's, there's no one easy solution. Although again, I keep saying we'll talk about this in an, a, another podcast, which I promise we'll do. Yes. So look, I think this ask Altucher is just one question because that was a big question. I know. I'm so sorry, everyone. <laughs> no, no. But we'll do it. We'll do another one of these. We'll do one of these a week. And uh, if you have any questions, Jay, what's the URL where they can the URL that you can ask James any question is jamesoutouchershow.com slash askoutoucher. I'm going to say it again, jamesoutouchershow.com slash askoutoucher. Or you could tweet and just refer to me at jayoutoucher and Jay will see that. I yep. might not see it, but Jay will definitely see it. And you can ask me there. Yeah, and the other way you can also do is sign up to notepad.com and notepd.com. It's open challenge for Ask Out Teacher on there. So you can go there, you can enter the challenge. I will see it and I will collect all the questions and I'm going to ask the great James Out Teacher. Yeah. So anyway, Jay, thanks for coming up with the idea of recreating the Ask Out Teacher series. I'm happy to answer questions about anything from entrepreneurship to writing to podcasting to relationships and anything you want. Meditation, politics, economics, your favorite celebrities, your favorite TV shows. Ask me anything. I'm happy to answer. I know a lot less than I think I know, but hopefully enough to answer your your questions. So thanks very much for listening and thank you, Jay, for producing this and see you next time. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.